Welcome to the American Writers 100 Pages at a Time podcast. All right, we've come to the end of it, the end of our series on the Harlem Renaissance. Today we're going to be looking at the second half of Arna Bontemps' Black Thunder, which is the last of, I think it was nine books we've looked at from various Harlem Renaissance writers. All right, the second half of Black Thunder is broken up into three short parts. The first of these is called Mad Dogs and deals mostly with the aftermath of the failed Gabriel's Rebellion. News of the attempted slave revolt gets out. Everyone is on their toes. We even get a window into the governor of Virginia, James Monroe, who's warning against increasing commercial ties with Saint-Domingue because of the slave revolt in Haiti. And once again, we're reminded of the intense intellectual, cultural ties with Saint-Domingue, how the docks had become all simmering with news from the slave revolt and the revolution in, in Haiti. All that is in the minds of the lawmakers in Virginia and the slave masters. And they even start to talk about shutting down these ties. Um, yeah, actually, for this reason, I put the the Creole version of the Haitian National Anthem there as the opening music for this episode. Um, that version, according to Wikipedia, was, was written in 1903, so it predates the Harlem Renaissance a little bit, but it's it's of that time, and it was at this, t- it was at this time you had increasing Caribbean migration into the United States, um, and you had you know, a greater awareness among black people about this diasporatic you know, connections. Of course, you have the Marcus Garvey movement, which was calling for African-Americans of having greater cultural and political ties with Africans to support African independence from colonial regimes. You had the Pan-African Conference in London and W.E.B. Du Bois was there. Sorry, it must have been the second Pan-African Conference that uh, Du Bois was at, 1921. Um, The first one was in 1900 or something. But and then you had these Caribbean migrants. In fact, we looked at one of these authors, Claude McKay, born in Jamaica, came to the United States, became part of the Harlem Renaissance. So there's all these, all this awareness of Caribbean radicalism, particularly the Haitian Revolution, which was really the central event there. Um, but anyways, uh, from James Monroe's point of view, uh, this was um, a tro- uh, trouble. There's a strong impression that it comes a too hasty resumption of commercial relations with a revolutionary government in San Domingo. I don't know. I don't know, but there's no need to deny the obvious. The blacks are in an uprising. Frustrated for the moment by betrayal, they have fled to the swamps and hills. Minimizing their power will not help us quell the disturbance. By all means, let's have the price offered for the arrest of the chiefs. The cavalry's been dispatched. Let us have added guards for our own safety and suggest that the night patrols be at least doubled in Petersburg, Norfolk, Roanoke, and the other cities. So here in this little fictionalized quote by James Monroe, we have... A connection between the rebellion in Virginia, which was just put down or just stopped before it could really begin, and and the revolution in in Haiti. Now, the, meanwhile, the streets are full of rumors and rapidly draw conclusions about what the blacks were planning, how far they had gone, you know, what has actually happened, who was in charge, all that, and even the radical publishers who we talked about a little bit in the first episode are on edge too. They they were of various opinions. Some were really worked up about the potential of a slave revolt. Some 
didn't really believe blacks would be able to stand up. There's a bit of a racial feeling there that perhaps they weren't ready for rebellion, which is a hard thing to believe when you saw what had happened in, in Haiti, obviously, but some were holding on to it. They did share a commitment to republicanism and anti-slavery, but there was a debate whether it would be black people themselves who would push for, for liberty. In fact, when it comes out to be true, a lot of the, the white publishers, these French-influenced radical Republican publishers, become a bit anxious. They start to worry that they'll be blamed for the rebellion and that they will suffer, their business will suffer, or they might even be harmed. In fact, the printer shop is even vandalized by an angry white mob that wanted to put an end to the writing of the Jacobin publishers. So we start to get into the we start to get into the trial, the investigation, the questioning of witnesses. And the first one we meet who is brought before them is Ben. Ben is the older slave who was brought into the conspiracy but eventually betrayed them. He's brought before the court. He confesses what he knew about the conspiracy and its leaders. Now, from the point of view of the whites, it's Ben's master who delivers the testimony. And this is really a fascinating point, which I didn't notice the first time I read this a few years ago. Even in betrayal, the slave is merely an agent of whites. So this is chapter 6 of part 3. This is how it ends. So the whole part was, was Ben giving the testimony. And at the end it says, Thus it befell that Mr. Mosley Shepherd produced an astonishing testimony in a Richmond court. How could any Virginian sleep? How could he be sure from now on that the black slave who trimmed his lamps was not waiting to put a knife into his heart as he slept? How could he know his cook was not brewing belladonna with his tea? The sickness called the desire for liberty, equality, was plainly among the pack. Where would the madness end? Um, so yeah, Shepard says a few things, but most of the chapter is this testimony by Ben. But it, it seems to get grouped in with uh, with with um, Shepley's, Shepard's um, commentary and, and testimony. Now, Bone Temp does not want to leave Ben like this, and he does allow Ben to speak for himself, even if only in a sort of internal monologue, which is really more of a prayer. And in that, he, we see his mind, it's seen in his mind that blood is not the proper price to pay for freedom, right? So this is a, a, an opinion that I think Bone Temps is reacting against, not just in, uh, in slavery, but throughout African-American history, and particularly in the time he's writing in the 1930s, he thinks blood is the price that needs to be paid for liberty. Uh, that's why he writes about a failed slave revolt and praises it, right? If you want to find any evidence that resistance isn't going to get you what you want, look to the failed revolts, right? But Bone Temps here is praising this failed revolt. So, but still, he takes time to go into Ben's head, to dwell in Ben's head, and to say, like, what was he thinking? What were his values? What was he concerned about? He feels regret. But here's what he says. Lordy Jesus, I ain't being no dog. I ain't being low down. I's just like you made me, Master Jesus. This here freedom and all ain't nothing to me. There's blood in it, Lordy. And the sight of blood make me sick. And I don't know what. So, Ben, he does, he does get his voice. It's not something we're meant to sympathize with, but... You know, it's an opinion that's real. And it's an opinion that Bone Temps thinks is real among African-Americans who are hesitant to, to stand up to resist Jim Crow or to, res, you know, resist white supremacy for whatever reason. Fear of violence, um, 
economic fears, whatever it might be. It turns out that storm really did put an end to any potential of rebellion. Um, there was hope that Gabriel maybe could reschedule the revolt, but it was pretty clear when they had to postpone it because of the rain that they kind of lost their shot. Um, the city is alerted. Of course, many blacks are already being arrested and were proclaiming their in innocence in the face of charges that they were part of the rebellion. I suspect many masters were, of course, willing to accept these claims because the punishment for slave revolt was death. Well, I think I can start up again. The, someone came by with a leaf blower, and the only thing I could do is kind of wait it out. Um, I, you know, I didn't notice till I started doing these podcasts just how noisy my neighborhood is. I, I'm going to have to find a new time to do it, I think, because this time of the day is causing a lot of frustration. Anyways, um, continuing on, um, where was I? The the radicals who were sympathetic at the start of the novel also start to turn their back on the slave revolt, claiming that militancy will just make things work worse. These men, it turns out, are, are liberals of Richmond. They fetishize rhetoric. They enjoy writing newspaper articles. They like critiquing the people in power. Yet they proclaim the value of nonviolence. They sit on their hands. They don't actively support our rebellion. The major character rep rep representing this point of view is Alexander Biddenhurst, who we were impressed with in the first half of the novel, but comes across in this part of the novel as a relatively weak figure. Quote, Would the frustration of this bold plot delay or hasten the great emancipation of all serfs and bondsmen? Surely it was becoming increasingly plain that liberty and equality for any poor class could not prevail so long as the system of chattel slavery continued to mock them. But this thwarted attempt by Gabriel, this colossal advertisement of wild discontent and desperate hope, would it not put the planter class on its guard, give them a chance to fortify their inequitable position? Certainly no one could be blamed, especially since it was everywhere conceded that, barring the storm, the blacks could hardly have failed to duplicate the recent success of their brothers in San Domingo. But life was like that. Beauty beats the frail wings and the scales of fate are shaken by a bubble. Now the hope to freeing the slaves was more remote than ever in the United States, and it would have to wait for the slow drip of spring to cut away through stone. And eventually that stone would fail. There could be no doubt about it. Only now, at this moment, Alexander Biddenhurst felt his own efforts so futile and unnecessary. Yeah, so sometime in the future, a thousand years from now, we'll have freedom. No need to fight now. Sit on your hands. Slaves will have to burp, you know, suffer through slavery. You know, we can't rock the cart too much. So, yeah, they, they're, they're, they're the liberals. So with this, we get into book four called The Breathing of the Common Wind. And it deals mostly with the aftermath of the revolt and the hunt for the leaders, in particular Gabriel. We witness Mingo, who's kind of our religious leader of the rebellion. He's in his jail cell and there's a really kind of brutal scene where he hears the trapdoor of the gallows falling repeatedly. It's just a nice little quote here. And in Richmond, bound on the floor of his cell, Mingo could still hear the hangman's trapdoor falling periodically. Obscure Negroes were dragged before the justice in the morning and hanged the same day. The known leaders, as they were taken, were not punished immediately, however. Um, so, you know, I guess the piss trickles down works even if you're a rebel. Um, at least the, the leader rebels got a few more days of to, to live. I think Gabriel's was in jail for two weeks or so before he was he was executed. 
Uh, all in all, I, I, about 30 men were executed for for Gabriel's revolt. Uh, most of them, obviously, not, not the leaders, at least according to this. Now, this scene is immediately contrasted with Ben's feelings of security and happiness at being declared a good boy by his master. So once again, we're reminded that the you know that Ben's betrayal is over his comfort, his unwillingness to disrupt his his life, his feelings of intimacy with his master. His basically, he's you know. All right, I'll use this term without any implication outside of the fact that it's used to refer to this kind of person. And so Tom, Ben is our uncle Tom, essentially, um, accepting subservience in exchange for some kind of security. Well, it's in the section that General John and Gabriel are finally captured. So we get two of the big leaders um, finally captured. And Gabriel, when he's captured, hands himself in willingly. He doesn't he doesn't actively resist. He, he knows he's going to have to face the music for his rebellion, and he does so with courage. Uh, in the final part of the novel, Pale Evening, A Summer, A Tall Slim Tree, Pale Evening, a tall slim tree. This is the name of the fifth part of the novel, and it's pretty short. It's only 30 pages or so. Here, the failure of Gabriel's revolt is contrasted with the successful, successful rebellion in Haiti. But while unsuccessful, we are told that Gabriel's revolt is ahead of the Hydra. I talked about the Many Headed Hydra book in the last episode, but I'll just review it. It's, it's a book by... Peter Leinbaugh and Marcus Redeker, two historians of the Atlantic. One focused more on sailors, the other focused more on England and the situation in England. And actually, Peter Leinbaugh has been writing a lot of great books recently, one on the Magna Carta. He's recently just finished one on May Day. So I really urge listeners to go and listen to or read his work um, it, and especially read The Many-Headed Hydra, especially if you want to get a handle on events like how a rebellion in Saint-Domingue influenced a rebellion in the United States, you know, thousands of miles away, at least a thousand miles away, um, you know, organized mostly by by slaves, right? Now, Gabriel could, could read, he was well-informed, um, but one thing you learn from this novel is that all the slaves were well-informed, whether they could read or not. It wasn't a you know, it wasn't about being able to read necessarily. It was about, um, you know, this grapevine telegraph, I suppose, the connections of the docks, sailors spreading messages back and forth, Caribbean or Haitian former slaves coming to America, spreading propaganda. There was a whole network here. And that's the argument made by Linebaugh and Redeker in the Many Headed Hydra, that basically resistance in the Atlantic was a Hydra. And the state representing Hercules could cut off a head of the Hydra, put down a revolt here, but two heads would pop up later on and eventually the, the the institutions of oppression of the of the Atlantic world primarily um, maritime capitalism and slavery are constantly under under threat now of course bone temps never read that book that book was published in 2000 or 2001 um, yet we have uh, evidence here of of the Hydra quote uh, excitement spread like a fire catching up barn after barn. Wherever there was a black population, slave or free, there was consternation. The Negro became suddenly a dangerous man. In Philadelphia, fear was rife. It was proposed or used to, that the use of skyrockets be forbidden because in San Domingo they had been employed by the blacks as signals. And Alexander Biddenhurst, hearing the argument, went home and made a note in his journal. I can well understand how men startled conscious made conscious 
consciences made cowards of them. They recognize in the Negro a dangerous man because they recognize him as an injured one. Injured men like injured beasts are always dangerous. By the same token, extremely poor men are dangerous. Okay, so we were reminded at the end of the Hydra. Now, the rest of the novel is basically denouement. Gabriel is questioned, he's put on trial, and then executed. The execution is witnessed by Ben, who goes off with his master, and that's the last impression we get in the novel. So that's it. That's the story. Um, it's really a fascinating novel. Um, it shows the global perspective of Gabriel's revolt. Gabriel and his followers were moved to rebellion out of local conditions and local offenses, but much of their inspiration came from across the sea. They passed around a letter from Toussaint Louverture. My name is known to you all. I have undertaken to avenge your wrongs. It is my desire that liberty and equality shall reign. I am striving in the end. Come and unite with us, brothers, and combat with us for the same cause. End quote. We are also faced with a comparison between Gabriel's struggle for liberty and white America's debate about the Alien and Sedition Acts, which helped bring Jefferson to power. The Federalists used the revolt to attack the Jeffersonian for bringing in French ideas and general talk of equality and liberty. Their recklessness with ideas in the Federalist view, gave slaves the wrong idea about their place in the Young Republic. Both desires, to save America from becoming a new Saint-Domingue, or to convince the people that they do not really mean to include blacks when they speak of the Revolution of 1800, made suppression inevitable. And of course, it is James Monroe, a, a Jeffersonian. He would be president after James Madison in continuing the Jeffersonian party. He is key here in the suppression of the rebellion. And as part of the Harlem Renaissance, Black Thunder is a fairly lonely call for resistance and militancy. While some sighed at the desire, at the as they described inequities, prejudices, or in the inanity of working class or low-class Black life in the South, and they called for artist propaganda, they cultivated and promoted a view of the most, you know, that the most education or most educated, most sophisticated, most progressive elements in Black America. Uh, be promoted. At the, in contrast, Bone Temps is calling for fire. He clearly wants his reader to be inspired by the history of resistance. And this debate would not be resolved even after the success of the civil rights movement. For all of us, black or white, Black Thunder a, a, has us ask a question. If violent resistance works to inspire us or create fissures in oppressive institutions, why are we so fearful of these strategies? Is nonviolence really the answer to being kicked in the face? It seems that many of our radical ancestors did not think so, and their efforts still inspire us. It is that too few of us have the courage to face the gallows. Half measures and half revolutions are safe, but are they effective? These are all questions we're, at, we're forced to ask when reading Black Thunder. So now I, I, I get to the part of the episode where I'll, I'll try to sum up the themes of, of this novel. This is actually the first... Uh, Harlem Renaissance novel where I'm not going to put the color line as a theme here. It's it's true for all the rest, all the ones set in the 1920s, 1930s, early 20th century. All of them have color line as a theme, whether it's about passing, whether it's about discrimination within the African-American um, society between light-skinned versus dark-skinned people, whether it's a preference of black men to have lighter-skinned women to date or to marry. All these things are explored in the other novels, and you can go back and read them. That's not an issue here. There's one reference to to like a light-skinned free woman, and there's a, a biracial woman who plays a role, but these aren't really themes in the novel 
um, directly. Anyways, what are those themes? Well, certainly slavery. Um, slavery has come up before in novels like, uh, not without laughter, but as a memory, as something that people who are still alive experienced and remembered and thought back on. But here slavery is, is explored as a real experience and as a call to rebellion and resistance. That's the second theme is rebellion. Okay, so um, another theme, militancy versus accommodation. Um, and this is really seen with the two characters of Ben and Gabriel, one representing militancy, the other representing a form of accommodation. Um, now, even the, the accommodator is attracted to militancy, but turns his back at the last moment. So there's a, a subtlety there through the character Ben. I don't think he's a simple Uncle Tom character, but he is, he's got layers. However, in the end of the day, he sided with his master. Next, we have the global context of slavery. This is a big theme here, and I, I don't know when this really entered African-American consciousness. Maybe it was with Gabriel's Revolt or with Saint-Domingue. Certainly, by the 20th century, you have this concept of the African diaspora and colonialism in Africa influencing black politics. You have new migration from both Africa and especially the Caribbean. All that's creating this global context of not just slavery, but the, the African diaspora. And that's a major theme here. We've seen it a little bit in the other Harlem Renaissance novels, but not quite in this radical militant context. Um, next, the institutionalization of racial violence. Racial violence is something we've seen uh, in other works of the Harlem Renaissance, but often they've been presented as mob violence, the lynching, um, certainly institutionalized to a degree, but not as formalized as you see in this book, of course, you have slavery, which is forming the institution that legitimizes violence. And this is seen with the death of Bundy, who's simply murdered by his master for really no good reason. And that becomes a moment that mobilizes the slaves. Um, the docks. The docks is another theme here. The sailor, the maritime worker, worker mobility. There's several different themes we've looked at in other novels that that match to this we can tie it up with Melville too the power of the docks the power of the sailor as a conduit of ideas as a connection as a radical force as a work resistor you know on many different levels and here we get a really great picture of the docks it's just simmering with resistance simmering with potential for uh, rebellion and then a final theme and I'm sure there's a lot more but um, just just mentioned some that came to my mind that's religion. Um, religion's a bit downplayed here, especially compared to like the conjurman dies, but we have superstition, we have religion as something that brings these people together. We have the character of, of Mingo being the kind of the religious leader of the rebellion. And, you know, as Bone Temps would have known, religion played a role in the Haitian Revolution. And it most likely played a role in Gabriel's Revolt too, as African Americans by this time, especially those born in America, were heavily Christianized, heavily influenced by Christianity and would be until the end of slavery. So that does it with on Black Thunder, Arna Bontemps. It also does it for this series on the Harlem Renaissance. However, I will say we're not done um, with the Harlem Renaissance entirely. We're done with these two volumes by the Library of America on the Harlem Renaissance, but there's a lot more works of the Harlem Renaissance Harlem Renaissance generation that we'll look at in the future or, or can depending on how long this podcast goes on. 
um, hopefully for a long time. Um, but specifically, we can look forward to the a volume on James Boldon Johnson. We can look forward to a volume on Du Bois, and then two, I think, at least two on Zora Neale Hurston. So I hope you enjoyed this series as much as I have, um, and I hope you got something out of it. If you have any questions or comments, please post them or send me an email at 100pagescast at gmail.com. For my next series, I'm going to go into nonfiction for the first time in this podcast. Um, specifically, I mean, I've talked about history sometimes in historical context, but <clears throat> this is the first time I'm actually going to go into a, a writer who mostly wrote, pretty much exclusively wrote nonfiction. And I wanted to look at a founder, you know, I wanted to shift gears. I want to keep this podcast diverse. So I wanted to look at a founder and I want to look at nonfiction. And I knew I had to begin with who I deemed to be the greatest founder, and that is Thomas Paine. And especially in the political environment we're in now, I think it's useful to go back to Paine and to you know, listen to what he has to say to us. So over the next eight weeks, um, we will examine the major writings of Thomas Paine, Common Sense, The Crisis, some other pamphlets, The Rights of Man, and uh, Age of Reason. So thank you so much for listening to this series on the Harlem Renaissance. I really enjoyed it. I hope you did too. Um, please rate, subscribe, share, uh, all those things you do with these types of episodes. Uh, let people, other people know about it. If you're enjoying this, you might like my Philip K. Dick series, which is, um, look, I'm going to have a, a, a kind of a sideline series alongside this one that's going to look um, directly at the works of Philip K. Dick story by story and maybe even chapter by chapter when I get to the novels. So that's an exciting thing I'm doing in the same channel as this. So I urge you to go check that out. Um, thanks, and I'll see you in 100 pages. We'll be going back to the 18th century, for real this time, with uh, Thomas Paine. <laughs>